Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How's it going? You know how fucked up it feels to have a winter like this? Ooh, um, like what? I mean, like, as you know, I'm in Los Angeles, so my winter, it's been pretty sunny in the last week, actually. It's been great. Tell me what your winter's like. Well, it, like it's like a drought. Like, there's no snow. There's no snow at all, at all, at all, at all. And the few times that there's a bit of precipitation, the, the temperature rises way above normal, rains, and then drops back down to like, as it did this past week, going from plus five to minus 22 in a matter of like eight hours. Oh, uh, rain over... That's weird. It sucks. And I guess that means it's lots of ice. Yeah. Yeah, lots of ice. It's not great. It's not great. Ugh. And you know what? It's funny that. because every time, you know, you ask me how I am or I ask you how you are, like we almost always talk about the weather, but it does feel like it's omnipresent. So anyway, I will ask you too. I know. <laughs> well, look, the weather kind of dictates what we do, right? Like it's, it's, I, I feel like it's like this perennial joke that the wet, like to talk about the weather is like the most Canadian thing. But I mean, no matter where you are, um, the weather can can really have an impact on what it is that you are going to do during the day, on what you're going to eat, what you're going to be able to eat, what you're going to be able to exert, all sorts of things. So I don't think it's weird uh, to talk about that. That said, this week, I was mostly inside, so the weather really <laughs> had nothing to do with my own uh, personal how things were going this week, but... Uh, I'm doing okay. I'm a little like swamped with work this mm, week. So I was yep. like, ugh, feeling that. But um, as I am still in recovery for that awful, awful fibroid surgery that I had had, I am feeling a lot, lot more like myself. I've been able to go for some runs. I've been able to return to Capoeira and that has been fantastic because as you know, um, that for me is a lot of like how my community is, um, where my community comes from, uh, where I, where I live. And so it's been really, really wonderful to return to that. So I'm feeling more and more like myself again, which is really, really great. Oh, that's awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. But I will say I'm still frustrated because this week <laughs> when I, I went in for a follow-up and I, again, had one of these experiences where um, uh, I go in for this follow-up. A, a nurse comes in and asks me, are you here for this procedure? And says a, an acronym, throws an acronym at me. Okay. And, and I say, what is that? And she says, the procedure you're here for. And I say, well, you asked me if I was here for the, that procedure to determine if I was the right person. And now you're telling me that it's the procedure that I'm here for, but I, I don't understand that acronym. And she's like, oh, <laughs> you know, you know, it's, it's just, it's what you're here for, for sure. Like given what you went through, can you just sign these documents that the doctor can start? And I was like, N but I don't know what you just said. <laughs> I don't know what we're talking about. And therein started another case in which um, I was arguing and self-advocating for, for a period of time that seems ridiculous um, with someone who, who really felt dismissive of, uh, of me knowing uh, what it is that was going to happen next to my body. And so it was, um, it felt like uh, I was a burden, you know, and that uh, they were trying to rush through things. And that was really, really frustrating. And 
I didn't like it. And it's, again, a part of my experience with this uterine health debacle. And uh, boo, boo, do not like. <laughs> did you ever actually find out what the procedure was? <laughs> I did. I insisted on the, the doctor coming in to explain it to me and to explain all the risks. And now this had been explained to me before, but the way that she had spoken to me about it um, was really confusing and she wasn't able to explain it to me. She just kept insisting that I just needed to sign the documents and it was going to be fine because she's watched it happen multiple times before and she's never seen anyone get hurt from it, but she couldn't really explain what it was. And then it turned out she was saying the wrong acronym and was calling it the wrong thing. So anyway, it was all quite a, a debacle, but I did, uh, you know, I, I, I just insisted on making sure that I could, could speak to the doctor. And, um, you know, when I, when I do go in for procedures like this, if I'm alone, I'm like texting people that I know to make sure that I'm like, keeping a record of these things. And that's sort of some of the things that we have to think about that it, it shouldn't really have to be that way. And that's, that's kind of frustrating. Hmm. Yeah. That's totally shitty. Yeah. But the procedure went well and I'm all good now. I'm like even more moving into the recovery space. So, so that's great. Great. You must feel very thankful and lots of gratitude. <laughs> I feel so grateful for you know, all, everybody who, who was support uh, during the time, the, the medical teams, my friends, uh, some of our listeners who've reached out to, to provide um, support and, or good words, you know, it's all been wonderful. And I know that we probably can extend some of my gratitude to even more folks. Do we have some people to thank this week, Nora? Yes, 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 we do. Thank you so much to everybody who shared the podcast, uh, who got us a new listener spreading the good word of Sandy and Nora. Especially thanks to everybody who donated for the first time or changed their donation. Specifically, thank you to Grace, Lyndon, Amanda, Colin, Ephemeral, and S. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so, so much. So, Nora, did you see the big news on Pharmacare? <laughs> I, I, I did. I did see it. I, I felt like I was having deja vu. Did we not literally announce what it was going to be last week based on a CBC article? <laughs> I think we did. I think we did. And were we correct once again? I mean, we can't call it yet, I guess. We can't c quite call it yet, but... Um, I suppose there's a reason why you you said I did with like a question mark at the end of your sentence instead of with like um, the, the confidence of someone who had seen massive news on Pharmacare. Yeah. Yeah. So this past week, the NDP went from the lines that you heard us talk about last week where they were saying, you know, the liberals have to decide what, what side they're on, whether on the side of big farmer or they're on the side of the, of the average working person. And now, this week, uh, Jugmeet Singh has announced that there is a deal on Pharmacare. Now, there's a couple of things that I think that we have to highlight here. First of all, there's no announcement of the actual plan. Isn't that weird? <laughs> like, what the fuck? I, I, I thought that that was so strange when I saw the news this week. It was like, it was like, yes. The pharmacare deal has been reached. And I was like, oh, my God, let's read. And 
It was like details to come. What? If there's a deal, if there's a deal, why do we need to wait for details? What is the point in announcing the fact that there is a deal if we do not have details? Like who, what's, who is at the helm mm-hmm. here? Like both for the Liberal Party and the NDP, that seems very, very strange, to, a very strange thing to do. But I guess they announced a few details. And I mean, maybe this was the strategy from last week, because it seems like the details that they announced really do quite perfectly line up with the sort of questions that the NDP was Mm -hmm. asking last week of like, will the liberals support birth control um, and uh, diabetes drugs on Uh, in this plan or won't they? And all that they've announced is that there is a deal and it will cover those things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me, if, 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 if I was going to write the story of how a new national pharmacare program was announced, I would probably include the two sides of the bargaining table coming together saying, look what we've done for Canadians. We've come up with this plan. Here is the plan. And here is the timeline for us implementing the plan. Allow Canadians to scrutinize it, for journalists to go through it, for industry people to react. And, you know, there being some level of celebration and, I don't know, um, demonstrating the triumph of goodwill between opposing political parties. That is like the opposite of what has happened here. So I haven't seen anything other than Krista Freeland making comments about how this is not going to cost very much more money from the public purse. But it seems like the NDP, whether by um, part of the agreement or just because this is how they've decided to approach it, they've owned the message. Like this is all an NDP thing. And Sandy, I don't know if you saw, but Jagmeet Singh announced it not in a press conference, but did you see how it was announced? No, I didn't. How was it announced? He did two television shows to announce it. One was Vassie Capellas' show at CTV, and one was Rosie Barton's show at CBC. Okay. And so how was, how was that scrutinized in those shows? Like what was, how how was it just like those shows became the mouthpiece of the party for a second or like how, how was it discussed? Well, I didn't watch either show. This was the news that was coming out on Friday because both shows, I guess, were releasing. Certainly Barton's show was releasing the details. I mean, the show's on Sunday. So that was like, you know, announcing that this would be talked about this weekend. And in all of the stories that I have seen, it is just the details that we've all been told already, that it covers two drugs or two kinds of drugs and that the plan will be made at some point public. It's like, what the fuck? What the fuck kind of strategy? I mean, I know we were talking about last week, the strategy was ridiculous, but it seems like even worse right now, like that the NDP is trying to salvage something because why wouldn't it be announced? Like, what, what do they gain by not announcing it other than more intrigue, more mystery? Let's not derail too many discussions about whether or not all of this has been worth it and just promising, 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 promising. And then the weirdest thing today, Jagmeet Singh did a video announcing this. And in the video, he still like talked about how they have to fight the liberals and fight the conservatives. And it's like, this is a deal with the liberals. You're not fighting anybody, right? You're prop. You're literally the opposite of fighting them right now. What is, this is an incoherent message that is not going to resonate with anybody who can think. Yeah, that's really weird. And I, I, I you know, like it, it, 
this sort of a weird announcement can only happen in a landscape where the media is so inept, right? Because all of the stories that I've seen on this from various different platforms just kind of announce exactly what the government would want it to announce, that a deal has been made, um, that it's going to be covering these two drugs, and we'll find out more later. Uh, but if, you know, like if I was a journalist, I think I would be like, what is the purpose of this? Like, why are you not telling us more about this? If there's a deal that has been reached and you are coming to the public to talk about it, then come to the public to talk about it. This seems like a really weird uh, way to just, uh, you know, self-congratulate some sort of self-promotion. And I would want to refuse using the media uh, for that purpose, I would be really trying to ask, like, what is it that um, they are either afraid of talking about, still trying to figure out? Why has it taken so long? Um, has it been worth it? Has the the deal that the the NDP and the Liberals uh, came up with been worth it? But none of none of the the stories talk about any of that at all. It really they do read like government fluff pieces. Oh my God. Well, not to mention like uh, they're chasing this like scoop as just as much as the NDP is chasing them to promote the scoop. Yeah. It's really disappointing. Yes. But to be expected, because this is where we're at with politics right now. And I mean, it's very clear to me, and I'm sure we said this last week, but they're just setting this up to be an election issue and that Canadians won't actually get any relief at all. Uh, for a while. The other thing that I'll mention too is I saw one article, I think it was CTV, that just made this like throw off comment that the Quebec and Alberta are going to opt out. No mention of the fact that Quebec has a pharmacare program. And one of my big questions as someone who lives in Quebec is how do these programs interact? Like what, 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 what actually does the Canadian program do and, and, and can it be compatible with the Quebec program? As I said last week, I don't even know what the Quebec program does, even though I live here and I buy drugs through it. So like if Canada's program looks like Quebec, I, I, maybe it saves some money, but I can't tell you that it makes life much better for average people, but I don't know. And these are questions that we can't answer because we have been told to just trust them because they won't release a plan. Or at least they haven't released a plan yet. Maybe by the time you're listening to this, there's been a plan detailed already and we're totally wrong. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it should like hopefully, you know, we're again, we're recording this on Sundays as we uh, usually do. The news on this came out late last week. And so maybe by Monday there will be more information. But Nora, we tend to be right on this podcast. And if there's one thing I don't think we're about to be wrong on, it's this. I hope we're wrong. Like, I, I, I do hope we are incorrect, but uh, I have a sneaky suspicion we will be right yet again. And speaking of the media, uh, did you see what happened at Vice? Oh, my God. Bloodbath. Bloodbath. Blood Bloodbath at Vice. So another um, online uh, news platform bites the dust. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Vice, Vice has always been the bete noir of, of, of journalism, right? Like this, 
uh, plucky, up and coming, different kinds of journalism, a journalism that you can't really expect in the mainstream, hiring the kinds of journalists that don't tend to get hired in the mainstream, always while there's a problem with their treatment of, of workers and always while there's some sort of controversy swirling around how the place was run. But, you know, this was supposed to be a platform that could do news a little bit differently. And the workers this week basically just had their emails shut off, the lights turned off, and, like, told to fuck off. And it's, I mean, stunning and also super exactly how things are going these days. And it really sucks because it's going to leave a massive hole that won't be easily filled or it certainly won't be filled soon. It might take many, many years for something to emerge in the space that Vice has occupied for so long. I mean, Vice is, Vice is for me, as old as like Twitter is or older, right? Like, or, or, or Facebook even. And uh, and it's and it's really wild to think about internet news without vice. Yeah, I think a- another piece of this story, and like again, this 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 is a, a, another one of those stories of a of a journalistic outlet um, um, biting the dust, in which hundreds and hundreds of people um, are are without warning. Um, getting fucked and people at the top I'm sure are are not going to be fucked so uh what's going on there uh, same old capitalism uh but the, another piece of this story that's really interesting is that apparently um the writers at Vice uh, and a bunch of contributors to Vice had started to get a uh, anonymous tips telling them that they needed to back up the stories that were on the mm. site because it was possible that the entire site was going to be deleted, which is like another, like it's a really interesting um, issue with respect to just like anything on the internet, how things become archived, whether they do become archived, you know, the role of the internet archive, which is like, you know, not, it's a, it's a great service, but the way back machine, you know, but it's like also not run by any public entity. It's just kind of up to individual people who are stepping in where governments everywhere have fully, fully failed. Um, but, but wow, could you imagine that, that all of this, this trove of information built up over years, like tons and tons and tons of content, um, that is important that, that, um, details and documents people's lives, um, their experiences, uh, political, uh, political machinations, all sorts of different things that Vice um, and was more willing to tell than, say, mainstream media could just be gone in an instant because of corporate mismanagement. Like, wow, 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 that that is the world that we now live in. Oh, totally. And I saw a lot of journalists jumping to like the very individualistic and personal look at that problem, which is, you know, we when when a, when a news website that that a journalist has written for for a long time disappears, we lose all of our, our you know, digital archives of all of our stories or whatever. And like, that's a, a problem, uh, of course, is, you know, you should probably be saving that stuff if you actually do care and you do want to have a, a list of all the stories that you've been published and it's not just somewhere on your computer already. But you're right. It's this erasure of 
fact and of history and of storytelling and of investigation that will make doing any more research in any place that Vice had actually done really good work a lot more difficult. And there's a whole bunch of fields where, where Vice is, is the place, you know, the far right, notably, uh, but not just the far right, also drug news, drug reporting. I mean, there's no North American outlet that is so consistently good and in-depth as Vice for, for reporting about drugs. It's uh, it's a disaster and it fucking sucks. And I mean, it's just I, like I personally have never written for Vice. So I don't look at this from my own perspective as like, oh, my God, another place which I can't you know, I can't write for anymore. But I know a lot of people are thinking that, <laughs> of course, it's uh, it's really bad. It's a disaster. Yeah. Farewell. <laughs> yeah. Farewell. Okay, so the the topic of tonight's show, today's show, I mean, I, well, we're going to hit on a lot of different things, but Sandy, it's the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Wow. Can you believe it? No, I cannot. Can you believe it? And can, like, can you believe um, that, like, what has changed about our engagement um, with this war? Because I do see that some other countries have changed and some of the the ways that folks are talking about this war have shifted. Like, I don't know if you saw, but Time magazine um, published something that would have been impossible to publish a couple of years ago um, that said uh, that Ukraine cannot win this war. Mm. Did you see that? No, I didn't see it. But uh, I mean, I've seen things saying something like that. Yeah. Yeah, the tide is kind of turning to start to discuss um, this in a way that, you know, perhaps it should have been discussed a long time ago, which is that this this is this is a going to be a very, very without diplomacy. This is going to be a very, very, very long war in which many, many people will die and will continue to die, which I mean, yes like could have like very obvious could have been seen from the outset. And what did our bloodlust for war um, from the West get us? Mm. Well, you say could have been seen. I mean, so uh, 2022 Sandy Nora episode 180 was why is Canada gunning for a war with Russia? And I remember we took a lot of heat for that episode. I believe that episode actually landed um, Member of Parliament Nikki Ashton in trouble because she retweeted it and Global News wrote a whole article that included um, her retweeting that episode as being like, ah, what the what the fuck? This is that's you can't you can't be against this. And, you know, Christopher Freeland is back. She's uh, there right now. Um, in fact, um, she made comments. Her, her pharmacare comments were made from Poland, from a military base in Poland. And yeah, looking back over the last two years, it's it's really I, I mean, once again, we were so right because it's obvious that when you go to war with something as big as Russia, something as powerful as Russia, a country as big as Russia, with a military the, the, that, the, that the Russians have, you need to have the full, 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 full support of the United States, and then you risk blowing it into World War III. And in this calculation, Canada picked sides very early, picked sides well before Russia invaded, and has been a very strong supporter of war. Now, 
you know, there's a lot of criticisms that can be made about whether or not Canada has actually given Ukraine all of the things that we've said that we would give them. I think Ukraine probably has the right to be a bit annoyed at at Canada for um, cheering this war on and then not giving them weapons enough to be able to defeat Russia. But I mean, you know, from the start, it's very clear, it's always been clear that this was something that would only end with diplomacy. And yet diplomacy still doesn't really look to be on the horizon. Um, You know, Denmark just gave away all of their weapons to Ukraine as a show of solidarity, which is an interesting thing to do. Uh, Ukrainian leadership have been all over Europe saying, you know, that the age of peace in Europe is over and that if that if Europe, if um, Ukraine is captured by Russia, it's going to be the sole fault of the United States which is also interesting because I do recall there being conversations about how this is not actually a a proxy war for the United States against Russia, but um, apparently it is. And, you know, what's what's the outcome? Well, I mean, a massive, massive death toll, death toll that we actually have no real idea. Uh, Both sides claiming that both sides have had 100,000 people plus killed. Um, When you talk to the sides themselves, Russia saying that they've had 45,000 soldiers killed with like names attached to that list. Ukraine saying they have fewer than that, 31,000 people killed, though American uh, estimates placed their casualties at 70,000 killed at the end of 2023. Like, for fucking what? For what? And then in Canada, we can't play any positive role in this. We couldn't ever reasonably be expected to negotiate or play any kind of diplomatic role to mediate the two sides because of how all in we have been for Ukraine. Yeah, and I just want to to clarify that figure thirty one thousand that you're citing is the is the figure of uh, what Ukraine is saying in terms of their troops that have been killed, right? Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the UN came out with a report this week that said there have been th- over thirty thousand civilian casualties, and oh. now that's um, ten thousand oh uh, over ten thousand uh, deaths, and just under 20,000 injured um, with with claims that the, it, that, that the uh, toll could be much, much higher than that. Because as we know, um, counting in war is, of course, quite, quite difficult. Yeah, of course. And so, you know, watching this and, and, and witnessing how the West responds to an aggressor like Russia and then, you know, absolutely not responding in the same way to an aggressor like Israel... It's been pretty wild and it's really kind of rapidly replaced what actually is happening in Russia. You know, like if Russia is a genocide, then what would we call Palestine? I mean, it's just like unbelievable. There's massive amounts of people fleeing Ukraine, right? The number of people that have left is in the tens of millions. The vast majority of people have gone to Poland, something like 17 million. And people have gone to all neighboring countries, including 3 million people who fled to Russia, which is, you know, an interesting kind of comment on the connections with the people within the in, in the region, obviously. When you compare that to what's happening in Gaza, though, my God, I mean, it, it just like remixes everything that they were saying to be true about Russia and its attack on Ukraine. All of a sudden, none of that can be true with Israel and its destruction of Gaza. And I know a lot of people have really struggled with how crazy making that feels. 
So, you know, who else was in Kiev on Saturday was Justin Trudeau. And uh, he uh, was signing a deal committing three billion Canadian dollars uh, to continue uh, security assistance for Ukraine. And so this is just like really frustrating, like given everything that has happened, given how much death and destruction um, has happened, given how little has moved on the political front uh, to to just uh, keep saying more of the same, please, like we're going to continue to just um, be uh, the suppliers for for war uh, in this rather than support anything that would help people who are on the ground who are most at danger um, uh, when when these types of wars are happening. Oh, totally, totally. So for me, I'm wondering, here we are, uh, two years have passed, we're entering a third year, it doesn't look like it's going very well for Ukraine, there's going to have to be some sort of negotiated settlement. Where is the anti-war movement at in Canada? <sighs> that's, a, that's a really good question. And I think it's like a question for a lot of our movements in Canada. And I think I think we're we're I mean, gosh, we need a full episode on this at some point for sure. I think that I, we're clearly really, really struggling with what we do um, in these moments uh, when 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 so much international solidarity is desperately needed. I I think so much of our work has become very, very individualist and individualistic and like about how much, like what, what we, how we individually see each other, how we individually see ourselves. And that's why, you know, um, in, when, uh, when all of this first started Russia in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, a lot of the response was like about how people personally felt about it, whether or not they were going to personally uh, project a Ukrainian flag. And, you know, like uh, Nikki Ashton, who she was personally um, in sharing a podcast that had a, a view that was different than the mainstream. And what has that gotten anybody like what's what has that done? Like that sort of stuff. That sort of, you know, the statement kind of focused um, uh, action or non-action, it, it really doesn't do much. And it's like laid bare in this, um, you know, entering our third year into this, uh, where what sort of impact have we had uh, on, on, on the government's movements around Ukraine, uh, foreign policy, and war. Now, you can see the impact of a different sort of strategy with respect to Gaza on the government and how we've been able to push the government forward in ways that I'm sure they wouldn't have wanted to move um, had there not been um, so many people out on the ground and doing the... the um, the, the necessary movement work, the necessary mobilization work that it requires to move the government. And I think that in seeing um, those those two very different approaches and responses, like we see what those impacts could be. Totally, totally. And, you know, 
the the learning all doing the the building things as we go along the groups that had been there and were really fighting to bring attention to things like Canada's arms trade before all of the information came out about Canada giving weapons to Israel like groups specifically like world beyond war all of a sudden there was an ability to make make mass education and and mass coalescence of an anti-war sentiment. It's actually really incredible because, you know, I think of where we were at last year when we had our Vancouver live show. And one of the questions was, where is the anti-war movement? And and the answer is like, you know, nowhere. I mean, there are people doing good work, but by and large, there's no national movement to, to speak of. And here we are four or five months now, at four months of consistent, sustained action in support of Gaza and against the war industry. It's pretty amazing. And I don't know if you saw this week, um, Alex Kosh from The Maple was on a podcast episode with The Breach. And he was saying that uh, the Canadian government has been using words like, we do not sell full weapons systems to Israel. And Kosh is the only journalist, I think, in Canada who's managed to find out how much money Canada has sent to Israel. We've mentioned his reporting a couple of times on the podcast and that there's no weapons, full weapon systems made in Canada at all. And so it's like not actually uh, uh, truthful to say that that's the case, that instead Canada is sending things like scopes to Israel, which is not going to kill someone on its own, but it's going to be used to kill someone. Now we have the United Nations saying that, you know, nations that are sending Israel weapons need to be considering whether or not they're aiding and abetting war crimes. So, you know, these kinds of pressure, the pressure in the streets, pressure of critical journalists looking at the information and being, I don't know, a brave is like such a, a, a useless word sometimes because it's really it doesn't take much bravery at all. But the bravery of, of writing a story that most journalists are not allowed to write it's really, really important. And, um, you know, while things are really, I think, clear in a lot of people's minds when it comes to to Gaza, like as we said months ago, like no one is calling to arm Gaza to the teeth to fight back against Israel. And there are a few parallels like that with Ukraine. How do you stop an aggressive neighbor that's looking to destroy your country and absorb it? You need to have international pressure and you need to have diplomacy unless you're okay with the death toll that will just go higher and higher and higher. So in, in addition to um, the, the ways that, uh, you know, people like average people on the ground can be uh, so helpful or harmful, depending on what our politics are, how our principles are aligned when it comes to, um, to war and uh, whether or not we have good anti-war principles or understanding of how wars come to an end. I mean, uh, so too has the... the um, the the media engagement on on both of these wars uh, that we're discussing been really really critical to how governments respond. Uh, media uh, and the ways that they respond to what's going on can really either embolden a government to take particular steps or to, uh, you know, put skepticism where skepticism is due and put hold politicians' feet to the feet to the fire um, and require them to justify the um, uh, like outrageous amount of money that's being put towards mm. 
killing people. And so, uh, with that, like, uh, you know, some of the, the news that's coming out of uh, the, the New York times reporting on the rapes. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Nor have you seen that? It's, it's pretty stunning stuff. So if you have been paying attention, the main article from the New York times that led the conversation around how the murderous campaign on October 7th also included a campaign of mass rapes and then just really horrific details related to those sexual assaults and to other kinds of assaults. That really, it was kind of an interesting rhetorical thing that people felt they needed, I think, to be able to talk about October 7th as being like, I mean, it was bad. When you have when you've got more than a thousand people killed in a day, I mean, it's bad. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't really know why you have to layer on the the badness. It's already very, 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 very bad. But the, this narrative arises that Hamas not only killed 1,200 people, something that we also know isn't exactly true, that the IDF also killed a lot of people that day. But anyway, in addition to uh, killing uh, 1,200 people, Hamas also committed these mass rapes. So people have been very skeptical of this because there is not much evidence of it. You know, if I was going to say, Sandy, find me evidence of Israeli soldiers rifling through the private, uh, you know, private underwear drawers of women in, in Gaza, you could probably come up with 100 uh, pictures yeah. of evidence from the last fucking couple yeah, weeks. Yeah, I mean, right? the idea of soldiers have proudly <laughs> that shared we know. that. So, yes. Yes. And not only that, but they've also shared other snuff films, frankly, that are just disgusting and horrific. And we have pretty clear evidence of different kinds of war crimes. But on the mass rapes allegation, the, 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 the news that underpinned this the most, uh, pretty much the only thing which became canon for what happened on October 7th, was written by two journalists. Although I, maybe I shouldn't call them journalists. So there's written by Annette Schwartz and I think her nephew... Adam Sella. I mean, they're related. Neither of them are actually journalists. Annette is a filmmaker and has worked for the military in Israel, which I mean, maybe isn't that surprising because everyone does have to do mandatory military service. But people have been picking apart this story um, pretty much since it was published. And now the New York Times has said they are investigating her investigation because there are too many things that are coming out that call into question the details of her initial report. Wow. Wow. Unreal. Unreal. <laughs> to, to, to be one of the news outlets so responsible for the spreading of that story and now uh, to have to investigate. Isn't that, shouldn't that have been done in the first place? Like, isn't that part of the role of media? Isn't that how that's supposed to go? Like, I, th I feel like things are happening in an incorrect order here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, except that, you know, you know, like the New York Times switched to being a, a, a war propagandist mouthpiece pretty, 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 pretty quickly. And, you know, when we actually do need news about what is happening and if if mass sexual assault was part of October 7th, we need to know that and we need to know who's saying that and what their credibility is. But one by one, these eyewitness accounts have fallen apart. And Israeli media has done a lot of work as well on this. I'm thinking of one show in particular that actually went blow by blow with a lot of the filmed evidence of, of, of male soldiers mostly saying what they saw and how 
all of the most disgusting and horrific accounts were not actually true. You know, the it's at the best of times in a moment of war, information, the information war is just as important as the ground war. But this has all been the justification for the genocide that is ongoing. And this is where it gets to be so disgusting. I mean, if it was the justification for, I don't know, bringing people to court or the justification for further occupying Gaza or something, like not actually fully ethnic cleansing, wiping people out, creating mass starvation, destroying civil infrastructure, destroying hospitals, destroying universities, destroying cultural heritage sites that belong to many different people and really collectively all of humanity. It's pretty disgusting. And and what makes me like on a very personal and kind of, you know, selfish level, the number of fucking people that were like, you fake feminists won't even condemn this. It's like, fuck you, actually. How dare yeah. you use sexual assault as some way to justify genocide, as if you needed to. What is worse than massacring people? There's nothing worse than massacring people. But this white woman victimhood thing became the key argument for most of November for why Israel was just defending itself. Yeah, you're so right. And God, Nora, like I, I'm actually struggling to figure out what to say next because yeah, you're so right. And it just feels so obvious. Like, hello world. There is nothing that justifies genocide. Nothing, 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 zero. And arguing that, that there is something that does, you should look at whatever that is with, with high key suspicion and see whether it's been used consistently over and over again against other communities. It has uh, to try to justify terrible treatment of people. Like it, it's disgusting um, that that rape and sexual assault is used in this manner. And in fact, the feminist thing to do would be to always be vigilant when that sort of thing is happening and being like, actually, do y'all care about rape and sexual assault? How come, how come the only time that you care about sexual assault and rape is when the supposed answer to such things is, is to, 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 to justify the murder of other people, to justify going after other people en masse uh, and harming them why can't we deal with those problems and how they exist in our society in a real way? Like it's, it's really quite like, it's just, there's, there's no justification for genocide. There never will be. And now here we are right at the end of February in 2024. And we can look back at the moments that that was used as justification uh, for Israel's onslaught uh, and slaughtering of tens of thousands of people in Gaza ongoing. And we can look back at the justifications that were used to support um, the intensification of war in Ukraine. And, you know, with clear eyes, I think, you know, we should be able to say, okay, now we see how these things have been used. Now we see um, how these uh, the the ways that the, the rhetoric that was used was justifying something that isn't exactly potentially what what anyone who was on the other side of these issues thought. 
And yet we could have seen those things right from the beginning because none of this has is is brand new. None of this is something that is fully unique and has never happened before. So like, you know, at this point, you know, I think we we really have to interrogate with ourselves in our culture, like what does it take to recognize these things and to under, to make sure that history isn't something that we pretend doesn't exist and look at these things um, uh, as anew every single time they come up and instead recognize the patterns so that we know that when this comes up, when these sorts of justifications come up, we know what they're used to justify. More death, more destruction, more heartache, more violence. <laughs> 